The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture is from Acts 13.26-43. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation— For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophet should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if no one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Good morning. Uh, my name is Britton Wood. I'll be with you all this morning. Stacy's here. Um, I've been here a couple of times. Maybe the last time you remember me here, there were helicopters and rain happening, and we were outside, and it was like a war zone, but we kind of powered through it. But um, I'm here to go through Acts 13 with you all. Um, I work for RUF, it's the campus ministry that's associated with this church, and I oversee all of our campuses in Alabama and Tennessee. Uh, Before we go into this text, let's pray that God would be with us. Father, thank you for your word and your servant Paul and your servant Luke who recorded this story. And as we consider what Paul had to say um, to the early church, I pray that we would find that there is good news for us today, and it's no rest less relevant for us today. Help us, Holy Spirit, tend to our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, I want to begin by talking about, maybe you're familiar with this thing. Uh, Have you ever heard of the Eisenhower Matrix? The Eisenhower Matrix is this kind of decision-making tool of how you decide what you should do next in life, and you can apply it in any situation. Here's what it is. It's uh, kind of this efficiency thing, and what it is is 
Everything in your life, every matter that you have to attend to, from brushing your teeth to paying your taxes to who you should marry, whatever, falls into one of four categories in the Eisenhower matrix. So, first of all, there are things that are not important and not urgent. Things that are not important and not urgent. These would be things like watching The Bachelor, right? Of like, not that important. If you feel like that's important and urgent, Stacy's here to meet with you afterwards. It's okay if you like The Bachelor. I'm not saying that, but come on, all right? Things that are not important, not urgent. And then there are things that are important, but don't feel urgent. And then there are things that aren't important, but feel really urgent. And then lastly, the most obvious one, things that are very important and feel very urgent. And part of kind of applying this decision-making tool is understanding that wisdom is figuring out which things go in which quadrant. And key to that is figuring out that there are some things that feel really, really urgent, but in fact are not very important. And on the other hand, on the flip side, actually, maybe the most important thing you do is figuring out that there are some things that we don't treat as very urgent, but in fact are really, really important. Things that are really important but don't feel urgent. And what I want to kind of put before you today is this, is that Paul is making a claim here, and at the very least, at least a credible claim that there is nothing more important and urgent for you to attend to in life right now. And his claim is not primarily a theological claim. There are theological and practical implications that follow from his claim, but first and foremost, he's not making a theological statement, he's making a historical statement. He's not saying, hey, here's an abstract truth claim about a deity that you can't really feel or sense, but it's really true and it'll help you. That's not what he's doing here. He's saying there's a thing that happened in history. And it really happened. If it really happened, none of us can be the same person ever again. Paul actually acknowledges later in 1 Corinthians 15 in his letter to the church at Corinth that if this thing that I'm saying happened, if it didn't in fact happen, Paul, the Bible says this, Christians should really be pitied as deluded people. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is our faith, according to Paul. Our faith is futile, and people should pity those who identify as Christians. On the other hand, if death has been defeated, if someone is making what appears to be a credible claim that death has been conquered, there is nothing that you can think of that is more important and urgent to tend to than dealing with that claim. For some of us in this room, the reality, the imminence, the inevitability of death is very present in our lives. You might be fighting with it right now personally. You might have loved ones that are contending with it right now. You may be walking and grieving with someone right now. You don't need someone to remind you that death is imminent and it's inevitable and it feels final. And there's nothing about it that feels good. And our attempts to pretend like it's not a big deal, like tell ourselves or coach ourselves that this is just a natural part of life, those are just immature coping mechanisms that we deploy because the one thing that's certain about everybody in this room, Christian or not, is that we are dying and we are powerless 
and we are distraught when we're confronted with that reality. Really, honestly, it's just too much. So we mostly ignore it. We distract ourselves. And maybe more than any other culture ever, we actually ship off the dead and dying so that we don't have to be confronted with it every day. Kevin Twitt, who's the RAF campus minister at Belmont, who's written on worship and and kind of authored the Indelible Grace movement, which is so many of the songs y'all sing here, actually always often says worship, what we're doing now, is really about preparation for death. And so today, and not just uniquely today because of the text we're looking at, but actually every Sunday, anytime we enter into and do, pres- and, and do business with, with our creator, this is not actually first and foremost a time to think about sentimental kind of religious abstract ideas that psychologically ease the burden of the human experience. Some of that happens. Every Sunday is actually first and foremost about coming to stare into the existential terror of the fact that we are all dying. Don't run from that discomfort. Worship is coming to God and seeking to hear and be persuaded of the hope that he has made a way. That's what Sunday worship is about. And what Paul is telling us here is there is good news. What is the gospel? What does it mean for us? That's our outline today. Really simple. What we're catching here is actually the second half of a sermon that Paul is giving in the synagogue at Antioch to Jews and to God-fearing Gentiles. The first half, he recounts the story of God's faithfulness in Israel's history, but it's here that he actually makes the most audacious claims in his sermon. In verse 22, he's, 32, he says, we bring you the good news. That word good news is the same word gospel. We bring you the gospel. What is it? That just as God had promised to our fathers, to Old Testament Israel, he is now fulfilled, raising Jesus from the dead. The gospel is that God has raised Jesus from the dead, that Jesus is alive. Jesus' ministry to you and to me didn't just end when he died on the cross 2,000 years ago. The good news, according to Paul, is not the cross. It's the empty tomb. Let me illustrate for a second. The first time that I read the Lord of the Rings, spoiler alert, the ring gets destroyed. If you hadn't figured that out, that's not on me. That's on you. The first time I read it, when the, the scene at Mount Doom, when the ring is destroyed, when that scene was over... I was confused because I thought that was supposed to be the end of the book. That was the task, right? There's six more chapters of Lord of the Rings after the ring gets destroyed. You know why? The story doesn't end when the great evil power is destroyed. No, no, no. Their hope was not simply that evil would be destroyed. It's that the land would be rebuilt and renewed. The third book is not called the destruction of the ring. The third book is called the return of the king. That's what Middle Earth anticipated and hoped for. The ring is simply a a necessary waypoint along the way. The gospel doesn't stop at the cross. And a gospel that stops at the cross, sure, it would deal with the 
with the great evil in the world, our sin, but it hasn't dealt with the desolation that sin's effects have brought into all of our lives. And Paul is telling us is that the gospel is that beginning in the one who conquered sin at the cross, Jesus, God is also bringing resurrection. He's making all things new. Paul is saying the whole redemptive project, this thing called Christianity, the end game in all of this is all the sad things coming untrue, beginning with the resurrection of Jesus. This is how John sees it in Revelation 21. Then I saw, this is his vision, I saw a new heavens and a new earth. It, the word new there is this earth renewed and this heavens renewed, made right again. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is with his people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. He will be their God and they will be his people. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, mourning, or crying, or pain. The old order of things has passed away. The resurrection of the Son of God in the first century is a sign and seal to that end. Paul quotes Psalm 2. He's, he's saying, see, even in the Psalms written a thousand years ago, there was anticipation that God's Son would come and do something. And he, he brings us to Isaiah 55 saying the blessings that were promised to and in David are now actually being realized in the true and greater King Jesus, and that the promise that the king would not die, written a thousand years ago in Psalm 16, was not about King David, because King David and his fathers are dead and their bodies are dust, but Jesus, the true king, is alive. Isaiah predicted it. He swallowed up death and victory, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all the faces. Jesus claimed it. I am the resurrection, the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And Paul explains it. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. In a harvest, the first part of the harvest are called the first fruits, and they signify that the harvest is coming. So Jesus is the first installment, the down payment, and the guarantee of the resurrection, the redemption of our bodies and souls. The whole Bible has not been about the cross. It's been about the resurrection. And so for that reason, Paul begins not with abstract, inspiring thoughts about God's character. Though that's valuable and at different times we consider that. He begins by saying the resurrection is not an idea. It's not like an encouraging metaphor so that you can remember, hey, in life sometimes you get second chances. Or in life sometimes there's renewal and sometimes there's new birth. Also in life sometimes you don't get second chances and there's not renewal and there's not new birth. Paul is saying we need something more than a metaphor for getting through some dark seasons in life. We need to know if death has been conquered. It's a historical event. And so he grounds it in a news account. He says those in Jerusalem and the rulers, they didn't understand it. They didn't find him guilty of anything. So they asked Pilate to kill him. They killed him and they buried him. And God raised him. And verse 31 is actually the center of the passage. For many days, a lot of people saw him after he rose. According to Paul's letter to Corinth, there's over 500 witnesses of the resurrection. Paul is not saying you should believe this good news because it makes sense and feel good. He is telling the hearers, you should believe this because it happened. And if you don't believe me, there's hundreds of people who saw the risen Jesus. Go and ask them. One of the things that historians still have trouble with today is that in the Gospels, the first recorded witnesses of the resurrected Jesus are women. 
And the reason historians today, Christian and non-Christian alike, just academics, have trouble with that is because if the resurrection were a hoax, if in fact it didn't happen, and it was just a hoax concocted by early followers, they would not have made up the fact that women were the first witnesses. Because at that time and in that culture, and wrongly, women were not regarded as credible witnesses. Their testimony wasn't even received in court. So you would not plan a hoax by recording that the first witnesses of this event were the people that the culture would dismiss. The only reasonable conclusion of why the Bible says the first witnesses to this were women is because that's actually what happened. Historians also wrestle with the fact that so many of those who claimed to see the resurrected Jesus ended up dying for that claim. And if the apostles in the early church hid the body and created a legend, one of the theories that they hid the body and created a legend, right? Our leader died. This is really embarrassing. And all over the first several centuries, we have numbers of historical accounts where local religious leaders died and the, and the movement dissipated. But in this case, the proposed the theory is they just thought our leader died. This is embarrassing. Let's make up a story and say he rose again and let's kind of keep our movement going. But then what happened is the local Roman authorities started killing people who claimed that they saw the risen Jesus. How many people do you think would willingly die for something they know is a lie, that they know they fabricated? The more reasonable explanation is that they saw the resurrected Jesus, that it's true because they saw it. And if it's all true, what does it mean for us? Two things, it means you're really forgiven, it means you're really free. That's what Paul tells us here. Paul says, because Jesus rose again, therefore, through this man, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Earlier in Luke 5, we're told the story of the paralytic. His friends brought him to Jesus. He was paralyzed from the waist down. He couldn't walk. And when he came into Jesus' presence, Jesus started his ministry to this guy by saying, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees get upset thinking that Jesus was a heretic because nobody can forgive sins except for God. So this guy's claiming he'd be God. Anybody can just say the words, your sins are forgiven. Any of us can say that. Just because you can say the words doesn't mean that you have the authority or the power to forgive sins. So Jesus actually acknowledges that and he says this, what is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he said to the paralyzed men, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And immediately the man stood up. Jesus could have walked around in ministry for years and just said the phrase, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven. He could have still died. But the resurrection, according to Paul, serves as confirmation that he has authority over all things, including sin and death. So when he says, friends, your sins are forgiven, you are forgiven. What do you do with your sin? This is something Christian, skeptic, non-Christian alike that we're all dealing with. We're all faced with our sin in various ways. Even if you don't like using the religious language of sin, here's what I mean by sin. If you're like, I don't, I don't adhere to that, I understand. Y'all, we're nasty to each other. I don't know if you've been on Twitter, okay? We all know that I, 
we're not the person we kind of should have been. We all mostly think of ourselves, and even when we're nice to other people, it's usually about leveraging other people for ourselves. We don't give much thought to our good creator who made us and gave everything to us. And if you're like me, and you look at a lot of people, especially on Twitter, and think, but I'm not as nasty as a lot of other people, that's the voice and sin of pride, which is the sin most resistant to the healing power of grace, as well as the sin that is the root of the most egregious violence that takes place in the world. What do you do with your sin? We're all seeking a sin remedy. Maybe we just explain it away, which is dangerous because that means we're refusing to take responsibility for the hurt we brought into other people's lives. Maybe we just punish ourselves with self-loathing. Maybe we try to compensate God or the world with good works, but the bills never resolve, the burden persists. Maybe we just numb ourselves chemically or digitally or through consumption or through soul-numbing achievement cult. Or we use comparison because you can find a lot of comfort for your conscience by discovering the people who are worse than you. There is nothing that can quiet your own conscience about your own soul than getting animated about really nasty people that are worse than you. What do you do with your sin? We're sin and guilt sick people and everybody's looking for atonement. For a number of years, I did RUF at Stanford out in Palo Alto. And a year or two in, in our large group Bible study meeting, I suggested that we added confession and assurance to a college Bible study on Stanford's campus in the Bay Area. And the student leaders in my group who are Christians were like, dude, that is weird. We're trying to make our group accessible to a really diverse student body. And our RUF was about 50% people who would identify as skeptical or non-Christian. And my Christian leaders are like, confession and assurance is weird. Please don't do that. You'll make the non-Christians feel so uncomfortable. Nothing could be further from the truth. The unbelieving and the skeptical students who ended up coming to our large group, which was over half of our group, here's what they thought was weird. Group singing in a 30-minute lecture on a 2,000-year-old book. They thought that was weird. Just so you all know, if you haven't forgotten, it's weird. You know what they loved? and usually cited as the thing that drew them to Jesus and kept them coming back was the practice of confession and assurance because everyone is looking for atonement. And maybe you've never had the courage to name the disgust that you have with yourself and if the offer of forgiveness wasn't real, who would want to? The resurrection serves as confirmation that Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth paid the price for the sins of anyone who comes to him and rests in him by faith. And it sounds crazy. It almost sounds wrong to feel like you don't owe anyone for your sin anymore. There's nothing that our culture hates more than forgiveness. The idea of bad people no longer being held accountable for their bad. Y'all, we hate that idea. Paul says in Romans 5, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will someone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might die. But God demonstrates his love in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. 
Jesus did not die for the godly, according to the Bible. According to the Bible, he died for the ungodly. And that means that Christians and non-Christians alike, we don't have to posture anymore or pretend. Just come ungodly as we are to Jesus and be forgiven. Let me address this for a second. Aren't you tired of trying to forgive yourself? That's usually our last resort at atonement. And, and that I, forgiving yourself language, it's the worst. And everyone I know who's been given that advice, that that's the key to cleansing their conscience, is forgiving themselves. You know what it becomes for them? It becomes another thing that they feel guilty about not being good at. The risen Lord has the power to forgive. It's crazy. Forgiving the guilty, but it's the only hope that we have. We need his voice and his verdict. He's the only one who offers it. That's the good news. Paul wants you to know that because Jesus is risen, in him you are forgiven and also you are free. By him, everyone who believes is freed. Freed from everything that you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The word translated free here is actually the same word the New Testament uses for justified. We're all seeking justification, and there's, there's a simple way to understand it. What is justification? Stick with me for a moment. What happens when you post on Instagram? Don't, if you're not a grammar, don't check out for a second. Don't be like, I'm above this. What are these millennials and Gen Zers? He's trying to connect with them by talking about Instagram. It's not what's happening right now. This is for all of us. This thing called Instagram, we've adopted it with like this intuition and ease. It makes sense to us. And here's why. Because this is what happens. Instagram actually demonstrates a deep spiritual and psychological truth about what it means to be a human that applies to all people. Here's what happens. First, you take a bunch of pictures of yourself, right? Till you get the best possible picture that you like, the best presentation of yourself. You edit it, filter it, whatever. I don't know all the tools, I'm, right? And then what do you do? Then you formally present it to a watching audience. But the interaction's not done right there. So you cultivate an image of yourself, the best possible version of yourself. You then present it to a watching audience. And then what do you do? You wait for their verdict. The likes, the comments, whatever it is. And what's the hope? It's to get a favorable verdict. For someone to pass judgment on you. Saying like, you're so beautiful, that's so cute, whatever it is. Right? You're getting a verdict on your presentation of yourself that you worked on and you presented to a judge. And if they give that fatal word, that good feeling, though it's fleeting, right? Instagram doesn't do much for us, but it does a little bit. It's the feeling that you've passed scrutiny and you belong. You're acceptable. That simple dynamic is at work in all of our lives. Doesn't matter if you have Instagram. It's at work all the time. And every decision you make, every article of clothing you've ever put on, it, it's, it's so present that it's hard, it's kind of like oxygen, like it's hard to be aware of the fact that it's so present in your life. Because let me suggest this, every word you choose to speak in the presence of another person is exactly that dynamic. There's some thoughts in my head, I'm going to present them to an audience and see how they respond. Will they find me interesting or fascinating or smart or funny? The simple 
act of speaking is presenting yourself to an audience, seeking judgment so that you'll be found acceptable. Our longing for justification is at work all the time. We are always seeking justification. We're always seeking belonging. And what Paul is saying here is that in Jesus, sins are forgiven and you are finally and truly justified or freed. They're the same thing. Because you're justified to the only audience that really matters. And because of that, you're free. The Jewish people sought to justify themselves through the law keeping, right? Many of us still are trying to justify ourselves through law keeping. We're all trying to justify ourselves through some means. And at our deepest hearts level, our hope is that whatever audience we submit ourselves to will live how they want us to live. That's called law. We will pass their scrutiny, that's called judgment, and then what? Then we'll feel like we belong, like we're safe. And belonging and freedom are really the same thing. What belonging feels like is freedom, to be yourself instead of perform for someone. Because belonging means you no longer have to perform, it means you're free. Paul is saying, in Jesus, you are free You are justified. You don't have to try anymore. Here's some of the implications of that. You're free to divert all of your resources to other purposes besides justifying yourself. All of them. Jesus has justified you. You don't have to stand under the anxiety of constant judgment to all these different audiences we're serving at all. You're declared righteous Same word as justified, same word as free. Because you're in the living one who is righteous, Jesus. You're free. Here's what what it feels like. The first time this breaks in on our imagination, it will feel like you have a lot of time and money on your hands now. Like, oh, you mean I'm free now? Yeah, you're free. Well, what did I do with my time? I don't know. You've got a lot of it, and you've got a lot of money now that we're all using to justify ourselves and make ourselves feel okay. And maybe you feel like, I don't know what to do with it. Isn't that awesome? And being mesmerized by the one who's forgiven you and frees you, you look at him, and you want to be like him because he's amazing, because I can't believe he did it. This is what it feels like to begin to live in this freedom. It feels like generosity with your time and your resources. It feels like patience. It feels like kindness. It feels like being excited when you encounter the presence of a stranger about the des- and you just desire to get to know them because, wow, a new person. It feels like loving, enjoying, serving those in need. It feels like being a forgiver. It feels like not thinking highly of yourself, even forgetting to think of yourself and your own needs, but rather enjoying thinking about others. It's when you understand the freedom that you have in Jesus, you actually begin to earnestly enjoy loving others instead of feel guilty that you're not good at loving others. And loving others the way that Jesus has loved you. You actually rediscover the law, not to be this burden that shames you, but actually God's wisdom for what love looks like. You get to enjoy imagining how you can bring good into the lives of the people around you, the people you like and don't like, and the people you know and you don't know. 
the way that Jesus has for you. Friends, the resurrection has happened. Death has been defeated, which means you can really be forgiven. And if that's true, you're really free. Come to Jesus. Rest in that hope. Let's pray. Father, this news is too good for me and my own faculties to make my heart believe it. But it, it's, it's your truth and it's what happened. So Holy Spirit, give us confidence and give us faith. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you, Bruton. You know, in the book of Acts, it talks about how the church moved the day of worship from the end of the week to the first day of the week. And the end of the week, actually, and it's funny, I was driving in the car just yesterday, and one of my sons was asking, he's like, when is the, when is the first day of the week? Like, when does, he was really wanting to know when does school start, because he didn't want to go. <laughs> and I said, well, today's Saturday, but you know, it used to be, and I started what I'm telling you now, and he was like, <sighs> you know, but the end of the week was Saturday. You know what? They started meeting, the church did, on the first day of the week, which was Sunday. And you know why they did that? It's because Jesus rose on a Sunday. And instead of meeting at the end of the week, they met on the first day of the week, on Sunday, to remember every single week that what we just heard about the resurrection is a reality. Because every single week, we need to remember. Because every single week, we forget. Because <laughs> every single week... We need to be reminded that the good news is good, and that doesn't change. Even when we've had a good or bad week, whatever our week looks like, it's good. This is good news before you. That's what this table is. And every bit of this uh, table is yours. Not because you earned it or you feel great about it or when you're a certain place, because only Jesus makes that news good, and he welcomes you to this table because we commemorate, we celebrate, we know historically, as we've said before, that on coordinates on a map, that your sin has been dealt with and death itself has been defeated out of that tomb as Jesus is raised from the dead. And so if you believe, if you follow that risen Lord, this table is for you. If you're here this morning, and, and, and maybe several of you are, that you're kind of still going, I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of really checking church out, I'm really checking who Jesus is, you know, don't come forward and take of this table just like everybody else. With integrity, come forward, maybe fold your hands, receive prayer, or, or remain seated, and really contemplate what was just preached on, what this table is about, because it would be easy to miss that. In fact, the Bible talks about if you do it when you're not really following Jesus, it can bring a lot of hard things upon you, because you're not really contemplating, what does it really mean to follow a risen Savior. Not a philosophy, not an idea, but a person. And that's what this table is. It's a table for us to commune and connect to the one who has risen, and we were reminded again of that today. So as we stand together, let's stand.